Corbettreport.com here in the sunny climes of western Japan, and we're coming to you on this 28th day of January 2012 here in Japan, and still the evening of the 27th for you back in America. So thank you once again for joining me tonight, and I hope you're ready for tonight's broadcast because we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite subject: money, 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 money. And unfortunately, it isn't a very nice subject for most of us, most of、uh, the people out there that I'm talking to, and myself included. Money is really more of a headache than it is something to be celebrated or enjoyed for the vast majority of us. And、uh, whatever else you think about Occupy Wall Street, they certainly have it right that、uh, that it is the vast, overwhelming majority who、uh, who are well doing without, while the very, very few live in opulent splendor. And、uh, we've seen this happen again, time and time again throughout history, where、uh, pockets of society become. Ultra wealthy at the expense of the very many, and ultimately that always and inevitably leads to societal unrest and upheaval and a restarting of the entire system again. So, who knows where we are along in that chain? And you might remember from one of my earlier broadcasts from this year about、uh, talking about the 80-year cycles and how we might be at the、uh, the end of another cycle, which would indicate a time of revolution and change. And I think we can all feel that in the air in various ways, but it's always the question of how it's going to come and what kind of transition it will be. And of course, on that note, earlier this week we were talking on the broadcast to Matthew Slater of MattSlats.net, and we had a very interesting discussion about alternative currencies and the idea of even going without money, of changing to a gifting economy. And I, I did have several emails from people saying that they enjoyed that conversation and want to hear Matthew again in the future. And I've had some emails from Matthew for some suggestions for other people to have on on topics like that in the future. So I will be following that up, and we will be talking about that more as、uh, as unfortunately the economy continues to collapse into the brink, and we teeter on the edge of economic oblivion. We will be getting more and more into this subject that I know is on a lot of people's minds, and of course, the question is always, what can we do? What is the answer? What is the solution? And this, like so many other subjects, is a well, it's a hotly contested one, and there are many different ideas, and they are all competing for your attention. And I am not here to tell you what to think or what to believe or how to act. I'm just here to present ideas to you that I think are worth considering. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing tonight on the broadcast as we dip into the archives of CorbettReport.com for this episode of Corbett Report Friday Night Highlights. So we will be going through some of my previous work, and I have been spending years talking to various experts and economists and writers and thinkers on this subject to try to pick their brains for what they think might be a solution to the types of problems we're facing. And again, I don't think it needs much elaboration to talk about the really、uh, terrible situation we find ourselves in with our economy collapsing around us, and more and more people going into debt just to make ends meet. And unfortunately, well,、uh, we're all in that boat, and、uh, that includes myself, and that includes Republic Broadcasting as well, the、uh, the network that is bringing this broadcast to you. So once again, I'll direct you to the front page of RepublicBroadcasting.org and to their pledge drive specifically. Where they're raising money to try to expand their operations, continue blasting out on KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth, and to expand into other markets, and hopefully get this message heard by more and more people. 
And I'll also remind people that I'm a completely listener-supported independent media, so I do rely on your support. And if you subscribe to CorbettReport.com for as little as 100 Japanese yen per month, that not only helps to keep me going, but it also gets you a subscription to my monthly newsletter, which includes a special subscriber-only video report and a uh, news roundup, and uh, and also discounts on my DVDs, um, so special to subscribers. So once again, I will ask for your support in that way, and I know we're all just struggling to make ends meet, so if you don't have the money to do that, don't worry about it. The best way to support this work is just to spread the word and let other people know. But on that note, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after these messages with more Corporate Report Radio. CorbettReport.com to look for solutions to our current economic problems. And as I said, there are many proposed solutions, but uh, it's up to you to choose which one you think is worth advocating for. And we'll be going through some very contradictory and contrary solutions tonight. And again, I'm not here to cast judgment. I'm just here to present the ideas to you. So first up, we have uh, Richard C. Cook, and he came up with something called the Cook Plan. You can find out more about that from his website, richardccook.com. He was a uh, policy analyst for the U.S. government from 1970 until 1986, and his career included service in the U.S. Civil Service Commission, the Food and Drug Administration, the Treasury, the Financial Management Service, etc., and he's written books on uh, the Challenger disaster and also about uh, monetary reform. He wrote a book called We Hold These Truths, The Hope of Monetary Reform. So, again, I will allow you to explore his website, richardccook.com, for more details on all of that. But we're going to start uh, with Richard C. Cook and his idea for returning to a government-created currency, not the bankster-borrowed currency that we're currently on, but a government-created one, which, of course, is generally juxtaposed against the Austrian idea that there must be asset-backing, commodity-backing to the currency, usually in the form of a gold standard. So this is this represents one half of the argument. Later in tonight's broadcast, we'll be getting into the other half of the argument, and we'll be expanding out with some uh, different interviews that I've conducted over the years and some work that I've done. But right now, let's listen to Richard C. Cook in an interview that I conducted back in September of 2008. All right, so broadly speaking, what are the steps that needed to take this monetary reform to the next level and bring this system about? Well, the first thing that we have to deal with is the fact that our nation, under our uh, debt-based monetary system, is dysfunctionally bankrupt. We have right now uh, a debt overhang uh, on the producing economy, and if you if you count in there household debt, student debt, individual debt, business debt, and government debt, somewhere in the neighborhood of $70 trillion. And so the first thing that we have to do is to restructure that debt and begin paying it down and uh, uh, pay off the people that we owe money to. And uh, then, uh, having done that, we need to restructure our financial system so that the government is generating credit out of the uh, natural uh, uh, uh productive potential of the nation rather than allowing the banks to do it anymore. So there's a whole series of reform measures 
that would allow to do this, uh, us to do this. Um, let me just refer to the uh, uh, model legislation that has been created by an organization called the American Monetary Institute. Uh, we have what we call the American Monetary Act, which I contributed to and which can be found on the uh, AMI website, that would begin by bringing the Federal Reserve System back under the authority of the uh, executive branch of government uh, and begin to restructure the existing debt so that that debt can be paid down and essentially retired and in some cases even canceled because we have a tremendous amount of debt that simply ought to be canceled through a bankruptcy proceeding. I would put a lot of student debt into that category where we are unfairly charging students an extraordinary amount of money on interest payments uh, to finance their college education. So a lot of that debt should be retired. Then the government needs to begin to create a new monetary system that is not introduced into circulation through bank debt, but by direct uh, issuances of currency by the federal government. Uh, there are really three ways of doing this that, uh, that I've written about. One I've already talked about, uh, and, and that is the national dividend, a, a annual cash payment uh, as uh, an individual share in the appreciation of the producing economy is paid out to individuals as a dividend. Uh, a second way is by infrastructure financing uh, by the federal government. Uh, the federal government uh, in the past, if you look back at the Great Depression, during the New Deal had an organization called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And it was really an infrastructure bank that lent money at very low rates of interest for the physical economy of the U.S. It lent to state and local governments. School, system, uh, school buildings were built with it. Hospitals were built with it. Uh, it went into farming. It went into certain types of industry. Uh, it was a low-cost way of, of allocating credit to the physical uh uh, economy through a federal infrastructure bank. Now, such a bank has been introduced uh, in Congress. The best uh, uh, legislation that I've seen on this has been introduced by Dennis Kucinich. Uh, it would be capitalized out of the cash uh, that the federal government has on balance with the Federal Reserve System, and it would uh, provide zero interest loans to state and local governments for infrastructure projects. On a sufficient scale, that would create a new currency for the United States. It would be a currency that comes into existence being backed by the physical economy of the United States and the physical infrastructure of the United States rather than bank loans. So that would be a second way to do it. The third way to do it would be through a monetary uh, uh, innovation that would be similar to the greenbacks during the Civil War period the greenbacks were funds, paper money that were backed by gold, spent directly into circulation by the government to pay its expenses during the Civil War. Uh, it uh, was used to pay approximately 10% of the federal budget, contrary to uh, what a lot of people say who are kind of uh, in favor of bank financing. It was not inflationary. And what most people don't understand is that greenbacks were part of the U.S. currency all the way up into the early part of the 20th century. In fact, legislation authorizing direct spending of government funds uh, by the greenback method 
still exist. It's, it's still on the books of the U.S. government, although all the greenbacks have been retired and don't exist any longer. But that would be the third method of funding. It would be direct spending by the government for expenditures that the government incurs in doing its, its usual business. And that would be another way of introducing a different type of money into circulation. So these are three methods that would create a new monetary system for the United States. Now, we would still have some kind of a banking system because banks are useful and necessary for liquidity and commerce by using what we call the real bills doctrine where the banks are used for financing everyday business and transactions of the business firms. But we don't need a banking system that rests on enormous speculative investments. We don't need a banking system that primarily is used to finance uh, consumption or that is used simply to inflate assets like we saw with the housing bubble, uh, with the equity bubble, previously with the dot-com bubble, those sort of things. Those are misuses of credit, misuses of the banking system. Uh, but if we were able to use these methods of government-introduced money uh, that I cited, we would have a new monetary system for the United States, not based upon debt, but based upon the real productive values of the nation. Now, the Austrian School of Economics argues that replacing one form of fiat money with another form, whether it be under the hands of the bankers or the hands of the government, is uh, inevitably going to lead to an inflationary death spiral of that monetary uh, instrument. And they would argue vigorously for a return to the gold standard or gold-backed um, or asset-backed, at least, uh, monetary instruments. How do you, what do you say to that idea that printing money out of nothing is inevitably going to lead to an inflationary spiral? The Austrian School of Economics really is the same uh, financial system that we had uh, in the United States before the Civil War with the state system of uh, state-chartered banks. Now, this was supposedly on the gold standard, uh, these banks, because at that time you could take a paper currency that a bank issued into a bank and ask for gold in return. In fact, the banks used to kind of gang up on each other at that time. They would collect a lot of the bank notes from a bank and take those into the bank, demand gold, and when the bank obviously couldn't pay because there was never enough gold around to capitalize the entire monetary system, the bank would fold. Uh, the, the gold standard is a system that has always been the one favored by the big banking syndicates. Uh, we went into a gold standard in the latter part of the 19th century uh, when silver was demonetized. Silver was demonetized through a congressional uh, legislation in 1873 it was called the crime of 73 because everybody knew what was going to happen was that the mon monetary system would deflate so much that the people who uh, needed to borrow money in order to survive like farmers, business people, uh, small business could not possibly keep up with uh, uh, payments on their loans because their uh, receipts from uh, what they were able to produce were deflating because of the collapse of the uh, of the monetary system. And that's exactly what happened. That's where we had the depression of the 1890s that uh, William Jennings Bryan reacted to so strongly when he made that famous speech at the uh, uh, Democratic Convention in 1900, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And I would say to the Austrian banks, which really have a system more suited to 1830 
into a modern industrial system that has tremendous need for capital and for purchasing power, I would say the same thing uh, to the Austrians. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. You have to have a system that is geared to the real productive values of the economy. And as long as you can maintain and regulate uh, the monetary system according to what the economy really is capable, capable of producing, and in order to do that, you need a tremendous amount of purchasing power because people need, uh, in an industrial economy, the ability to buy a home, to buy a car, uh, to buy the necessities of life, to educate their children. Uh, if you had a monetary system to do that, you would not need a gold standard. Great. We'll leave it there, but there is much more in that interview, so I hope you'll go download the original from CorbettReport.com. We'll be right back, right after these messages. here on Corbett Report Radio going over economic solutions tonight. And so far we've listened to Richard C. Cook, a former U.S. policy analyst who worked in the Treasury and other departments of the U.S. government for a long period of time, and he's advocating the Cook Plan, which includes the giving of dividends to every U.S. citizen and uh, and other such radical ideas, radical in this day and age at any rate. So uh, there you go. And once again, I hope you will take a look at richardccook.com for more about his ideas but now let's turn to the other side of the argument and listen to a little bit from the Mises Institute about the idea of the gold standard. So I won't do too much in the way of introduction for this clip. Suffice it to say that it comes from an old episode of my podcast, episode number 55, which was released in September of 2008, and it was called How to Fix the Economy. So let's listen to that clip. Now, while I certainly agree with the ideas and the ideals of Richard C. Cook in arguing for his solution to the economic crisis. I think at the same time, he's a bit quick to dismiss the idea of the Austrian school of economics as an archaic economic system, as if the idea of returning to gold was somehow archaic in and of itself. Now, this is a charge that has been answered by the Mises Institute and the Austrian school of economics in previous occasions, and one example of that comes from Murray Rothbard, one of the most famous proponents of the Austrian School of Economics and one of the most famous libertarian philosophers in the 20th century. He wrote an essay called The Case for the 100% Gold Dollar, which is available for free on the Mises Institute website. It's also available for order in book form, and I suggest people follow the link again from CorbettReport.com documentation tab to find the link to that essay. But right now I'd like to listen to a short audio extract from that essay. And the audio of that essay is also available on the Mises Institute website. But let's listen to what our proponent of a return to the gold standard says to the people who think that the government should simply take over the printing of the money. The natural tendency of the state is inflation. This statement will shock those accustomed to viewing the state as a committee of the whole nation ardently dispensing the general welfare, but I think it nonetheless true. The reason seems to be obvious. As I have mentioned above, money is acquired on the market by producing goods and services, and then buying money in exchange for these goods. But there is another way to obtain money. 
creating money oneself without producing, by counterfeiting. Money creation is a much less costly method than producing. Therefore, the state, with its ever-tightening monopoly of money creation, has a simple route that it can take to benefit its own members and its favored supporters. And it is a more enticing and less disturbing route than taxes, which might provoke open opposition. Creating money, on the contrary, confers open and evident benefits on those who create and first receive it. The losses it imposes on the rest of society remain hidden to the lay observer. This tendency of the state should alone preclude all the schemes of economists and other writers for government to issue and stabilize the supply of paper money. Once again, I recommend my listeners go and listen to that essay in its entirety from the Mises Institute website, as it gets into a great deal of detail about the gold standard system and how it compares to the system of simply printing money to suit the whims of the government. All right, once again, that comes from episode 55 of my podcast from 2008, and I sounded so much younger then, didn't I? And yes, indeed, that was uh, that was a few years ago, so I, this does not necessarily represent the most up-to-date uh, information in terms of the information itself or my thinking along these lines, but at any rate, there it is. And I would suggest that you go back to the archives and take a look at that episode 55 because it was uh, extremely interesting that that episode was released in September of 2008, exactly the day before the Lehman Brothers crash occurred. So it was uh, rather fortuitous to have a How to Fix the Economy episode literally coming out the day before the economy crashed for all to see. And, of course, the, the crash was something that we'd been talking about on the Corbett Report for, for months and months, if not years, prior to that point. But at... Uh, at exactly that point when I was thinking deeply about this and trying to come to some sort of uh, understanding or deeper understanding of the problems, the problem presented itself for all to see. So that was pretty interesting. And then the follow-up episode was the one that came out after the Lehman Brothers crash, and it was called uh, The New World Order is Here, or something along those lines. Uh, I'll let you look that up for yourself, episode 56. So those make an interesting pair of, uh, of reports because there was so much that happened in that week. And that old truism really is true that sometimes more happens in a week than happens in a previous decade or, or even a century sometimes. So certainly September 2008 was quite a turning point, for at least in terms of the public consciousness of the, uh, the awareness of the problem. And once again, it's easy to understand that there is a problem. It's much more difficult to find the solution, but it is something that we have to devote ourselves to because if we do not find the right solution, we can be led down a blind path and we can be led into just another spot in the uh, in the unfolding chain of events that are leading us towards, well, the bankster-controlled tyranny that we're all trying to avoid. At any rate, let's uh, brighten things up with some more solutions, ideas, and answers on the other side of this break, and we'll come back with some more from the archives, so stay tuned right there. We'll be right back on Corbett Report Radio. You can trust the government. They just want you for their games. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
things that makes economics a difficult subject to broach at any time, let alone on a radio broadcast like this, is the jargon that is associated with it that makes people's eyes glaze over and their eyeballs roll back into their head. So I introduced you in a previous edition of Corbett Report Radio uh, Friday Night Highlights to my Economics 101 series, which was designed to combat that jargon and demystify some of the magic words that the banksters throw out at us to confuse us. And the very, very first edition of that uh, Economics 101 was an interview that I did with Bob Chapman, the international forecaster, about sound money and fiat money, just explaining and describing and fleshing out those terms. So I hope you'll go and watch the video for a chance to uh, to see me without my glasses, not because I was being vain, but simply because I didn't have the lighting set up for it. So there's a little bit of Corbett Report trivia for you. But let's listen to this description by Bob Chapman of sound money versus fiat money. Well, essentially, sound money means money that is backed by gold. Fiat money is unbacked by gold. And it's really as simple as that. Up until August the 15th, 1971, other nations were able to turn dollars into the U.S. government and get gold. Well, up until the late 1960s, um, they weren't interested in that. Um, but as the economic and financial situation in America deteriorated during the Vietnam War and the poor leadership of Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, things became shaky. And Charles de Gaulle, who at that time uh, was the president of France, he decided that he had too many dollars and he wanted to cash them in. And so France and others cashed in their dollars for gold. Well, in Washington they panicked and they removed the gold backing, Richard Nixon did, and since then, we've had a fiat currency. There's only one currency in the world right now that has any kind of a gold backing, and that's a euro. It was 15%. We don't know what it is now. My best guess is it's about 5 to 7%. But other than that, every currency, including the Swiss franc, Canadian dollar, they're all unbacked. So sound money is money that's backed by gold and the precepts of classical economics. What has been practiced in America and throughout most of the world since the late 1930s is Keynesianism. And this Lord Keynes, who was an economist, he is the, his teachings are what are followed in universities as well as in business. And that's why you're in the terrible shape we're in today. Uh, the reason Keynes propounded what he did was that he was an inner member of the elitist structure and they wanted a game they could play so they could they could perpetually fleece the citizens of their country. And the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and the United States are a perfect example of that. They both have privately owned central banks. Federal Reserve came into being in 1913, the Bank of England, I'll guess it's 1648, somewhere back there. So, still controlled by the same families, etc. In the United States, when it was formed, 12 regional banks were formed. These regional banks are called Federal Reserve Banks. 
They are the owners of the Federal Reserve in Washington. They have a committee called the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC, and they really are the ones who make policy and sort of under the table, so to speak, tell, in this case, Mr. Bernanke and his advisors what to do. The people who own those Federal Reserve Banks, the large shareholders, are the same people that owned them in 1913, and they are American and European bankers. And so sound money is money that is backed by something, and hopefully gold. Fiat money is money that is backed by the good word of a privately owned corporation called the Federal Reserve. So it seems that in times of prosperity, people wouldn't see a difference between sound money and fiat money. But in times of economic calamity, like we're facing right now, the differences start to become apparent. That is a very good and valid point. Uh, one of the interesting things is, and you should all be mindful of it, if you asked 100 MBAs in business about the Federal Reserve, they say, well, you know, it belongs to the government and it does a monetary policy and so on. They don't know what I just told you. Maybe a handful of people who have doctorates, they might know, probably would know. But the average person on the street and the average person on Wall Street, I spent 28 years there, they don't know the Federal Reserve from Federal Express. And that's the truth. And uh, all they're interested in is generating commissions so they can get rich. You know, I've been there. I've done that. But anyway, um, it is a little-known fact, and I'm trying to help Ron Paul expose it because I think it's so important because if we can get sound money back and we can get rid of the Federal Reserve System and we can erect tariffs on goods and services, then we can get our country back. If we can't do that, we're in serious, serious trouble. Right, Bob Chapman of the International Forecaster from the very first ever edition of Economics 101, which was released back in August of 2009. And, of course, the links to that and all of the things cited today will be in the show notes at corporatereport.com slash radio. But moving right along, we're going to move over to uh, an interview that I conducted with Ellen Brown late last year for GRTV. I do an interview series with GRTV that can be found at grtv.ca. And last year we talked to Ellen Brown about the idea of public banking. And if you want to know more about this idea, you can go to publicbankinginstitute.org. But in a nutshell, on the front page of publicbankinginstitute.org, they say that public banks are viable solutions to the present economic crises, potentially available to any size government or community, owned by the people or of a state or community, economically sustainable, able to offset pressures for tax increases with return credit income to the community, ready sources for affordable credit, required to promote the public interest, and constitutional as ruled by the U.S. Supreme Court. And public banks are not operated by politicians. They are not boondoggles for bank executives. They are not speculative ventures that maximize profits in the long term, in the short term, without regard to the long-term interests of the public. So this is an idea that Ellen Brown has been promoting uh, for some time. You might remember Ellen Brown is the author of Web of Debt, a very popular book on the subject of the monetary system and how to reform it. 
and she's uh, promoting public banking as one solution. And one example of that is the Bank of North Dakota, a publicly operated bank. And there's a nice uh, quote from the president of the Bank of North Dakota there on the front page of Public Banking Institute. So I'll let you read that for yourself. But uh, let's let's start exploring the idea of public banking, how it came about, and, uh, and what states are doing to try to take the uh, the issuance of money uh, into their own hands and hopefully deleverage the power that the Federal Reserve ha- has uh, acquired by centralizing all of that power in those elite bankster hands. So here's Ellen Brown on GRTV. Well, we have now, we have 14 states that actually have bills pending of one sort or another, uh, including California, but unfortunately that it just got vetoed by, by um, Jerry Brown. But, but we're spinning, we're, we're calling that a win anyway, because, well, anyway, that's a long story. But we have 14 states with bills of one sort or another pending, uh, to look at the idea of a state-owned bank, either as a study or to actually form a bank. Uh, and the reason we wanted to form an institute, actually, we had this Google group going for several years, and we went back and forth on all the issues, and we finally got it nailed, and we're, we're you know, I finally thought I understood it well enough that I could go out there and talk about it and uh, be an authority on it. And then we decided we knew it, we understood the problem. Now, we, now we, it was time to get out there and take some action. So it's our grassroots organized movement. Um, it's grassroots in the sense that we have no George Soros. <laughs> we have, I mean, we're totally volunteers in this organization, um, <clears throat> but committed volunteers, and we're working hard. So, so we've spread, the, we've gotten the idea out there. It'll be a while, I think, before we see a real state bank. But one state has one. That's North Dakota. It's the only state that has um, beaten the credit crisis. I mean, they have not experienced the credit crisis at all. They've had a budget surplus every single year. Uh, they haven't lost a single bank in over a decade. They have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, something like 3%. They had the lowest uh, default rate on loans, and they have um, fewer big out-of-state banks and more public or more local banks than than other states. So some people say, well, it's because they've got oil, but Alaska, for example, is the same size as North Dakota and has twice as much oil, but they are doing less well. They have a 7% unemployment rate. So so even though North Dakota has resources, it's the bank that provides the infrastructure that it's it's not enough to just have these resources in the ground. You need credit and you need access to credit in order to have the businesses that can profit and turn those resources into into something that can be used. So that's what they've got. They've got a, a credit system that works. It raises the question of how that credit system that works came about at all, because obviously that type of system is anathema to the, the privately owned central banks and the private bankers who want to keep this system for themselves and for their own purposes. And I think anyone who's done a serious study of the economic history of the United States has seen that basically it's been a long battle between people who wanted to uh, to institute things like that and 
people who wanted the private banking institutions to control the issuance of money. And I think that that's been a, a, a battle that we've seen played out for, for a long time and was really the central core issue of a lot of American politics until the formation of the Fed in 1913, at which the issue was seemed to be settled and, and it sort of disappeared from the, uh, the, the, the media and the education system. But uh, so it raises the question of how did this, uh, this uh, state-owned bank come about and how did, uh, how did it really get going? Yeah. Well, there have been state-owned banks that have come about before, but they usually get squelched eventually. I think the reason this one has lasted for 90 years is they did work it out so that it's a public-private arrangement, that the publicly-owned state bank uh, services the local banks. But that's those are the banks that are suffering right now. We've had two two banking systems ever since the 1860s, the the state bank system and the federal bank system and the federal bank system are the big wall street banks particularly they dominate the federal system so they're taking over right now i mean in california i don't we don't even have any local banks where i am they're they're now uh, we had two and i had accounts in both of them and they're now one of them is chase bank and the other is u.s bank so they're both big wall street banks now they've been taken over so if you can keep it's the local banks that have an interest in serving the local business. The big banks have no interest in making loans to local business. It's too risky. Why should they bother? They've got this virtually free money they can get from the Fed and from each other, and it's much more lucrative to them either to speculate in commodities or other things abroad, or what's what works very well for them is to buy long-term government bonds at 3%, because these have no capital requirement. The capital requirement for government bonds are zero. So they can buy all of those that they want. Whereas if they, if they buy, let's say mortgages, or if they make, I mean, if they make loans for mortgages or they make loans to, to businesses, then they have to worry about the capital requirement. And as soon as they've, um, used up all their capital, in other words, you know, $8 of capital will get you $100 of loans, then they can't make any more loans. They have to wait for 30 years till those loans get paid off. So what they do if they do buy mortgages is um, sell them off to to investors. And so that's, that's what's the whole mortgage-backed security scam that, that we've seen. Uh, I mean, they had no motivation to make sure that these uh, borrowers were actually sound borrowers. They just wanted to make a, a sale, so they sold the stuff to the unwary investors who might be somebody in Iceland or Sweden or you know, um, or pension funds. And, yeah, so so that didn't work out so well. So so a state bank with the uh, partnering with the local banks can provide the capital, can help them with capital. The in North Dakota, the state bank guarantees the loans of the local banks, allowing them to make much bigger loans than they could otherwise. And they provide the state bank provides liquidity to the small banks. That's why the small banks, uh, the local banks aren't making loans to small business right now because they don't they aren't they don't know that they can get money from the other banks as needed. The way banking works is they make the loan first. I mean, if you have credit lines to many different businesses, and if they all hit up their credit lines at once, you're going to run out of money. Uh, so you don't dare do that unless you know that you can get short-term loans from the other banks. And what's happening right now, even though there's $1.6 trillion in excess reserves sitting on the books of the big big banks, they're not available to the little banks. And the reason is because the Fed is paying 
0.25% interest on those reserves. So the banks have no no incentive to lend them to the little banks. Why let go of them when you can make just as much keeping them and then you still have your reserves and you can use them as collateral to buy bonds or something that will make you more money. So the whole system is messed up. Um, and in North Dakota, the, the Bank of North Dakota provides the liquidity for these local banks so they can make loans to local business and to, for mortgages, the homeowners. And they also act as a buffer for the state bank. So the state bank is not really um, taking a risk with these loans. The state bank is not going to owe anything unless the local bank literally goes bankrupt and they have not lost a single local bank in over, you know, at least a decade. That's as far back as we've seen the records. So it's a perfectly, perfectly safe for the state bank. In fact, we got an idea recently. It seems that 97% of mortgages are now federally guaranteed. They're, they're guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie. And so those loans are perfectly secure. The big Wall Street banks don't want to make, don't want to do mortgages because it'll tie up their capital. But a state bank could do that. And this, that would be like free money to the state. They could give, they could charge half the interest rate that the Wall Street banks are, are charging. It's guaranteed by the government, so they're, the federal government, so they're not taking any risk at all. So, and they've got plenty of deposits or plenty of revenues that they can turn into a deposit base. Uh, California would be the largest commercial bank in the world or would be bigger than the largest commercial bank in the world if they were to uh, form a state-owned bank because they just have so much in the way of capital and so much in the way of potential deposits. All right, friends, welcome back to the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday night edition. Of course, on Friday night highlights, we go through and comb through the archives of CorbettReport.com for interviews and episodes of the podcast and articles and videos that help to highlight the subject of the evening. And tonight, of course, we've been talking about solutions to our economic crisis and ways that we can right the economy that has been so wronged by the banksters. And tonight we've been looking at macroeconomic ideas. So we've been looking at the grand, grand scale of national monetary reform and uh, the idea of international trade and how it could be facilitated and sound money versus fiat money and publicly owned state banks and things of that nature, which are on the macroeconomic scale and things that we have to at least understand and be aware of some of the ideas that are out on the table. And if it's something that ignites your passion, then perhaps it's something that you can get into and start advocating for. Perhaps you already are and you already know much more about the subject than myself or my guests in which case, pat on the back for yourself. But I'd also like to stress that economy, of course, connects us to the world around us. It's the question of how we interact and trade with others. But it doesn't necessarily have to take place on such a macroeconomic scale. And I think that was something that was really being pointed to in the Matthew Slater interview from earlier this week, 
where we were talking more about interpersonal trade and how to facilitate that through a gifting economy and, and things of that nature. So I think it's not necessarily always about the macro scale and uh, thinking about national reforms. In fact, more and more I'm convinced that it's the question of getting detached from that national and international grid and becoming more on a one-to-one basis that was what, where it all boils down to. But uh, unfortunately, in this transition phase, what we're going through right now, we all have to uh, earn a dollar or a yen or a peso or whatever we are earning our national currency in in order to put food on the table and a roof over our head. And so uh, we are all forced to do deals with the devil to a certain extent just to live our daily lives. And it's a question of how to get off that system and onto the system we want and uh, it makes you wonder if it's uh, all about just running off to uh, to a little plot of land somewhere out in the woods and uh, foregoing all of the modern creature comforts and just uh, starting from scratch. And sometimes I feel like that, and I'm sure a lot of you have felt that way too. And, uh, and I think it's something that we have to at least work towards uh, getting off of the, the grid in many ways. It's always just a question of how far you want to go. At any rate, we're going to leave this rather large discussion there because there's no single episode of any radio broadcast that ever, that's ever going to dig to the absolute root of this problem and, and solve it all in one hour. But at least we've uh, hopefully given you some food for thought to chew on over the weekend. And hopefully you'll be back refreshed, as will I, for another week of broadcasts next week where we'll be talking about uh, 9-11 and other such uh, topics. So I hope you'll be joining me for that. And once again, I would like to take this opportunity to remind everyone who's only a listener of the radio broadcast that at CorbettReport.com I do have podcasts and interviews and videos and articles and all sorts of media, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, completely there, completely free. So you can go and browse through the archives there at any time. I hope you will take a look at CorbettReport.com and follow um, me there. And, of course, if you prefer YouTube, I'm at YouTube.com slash CorbettReport. So uh, new information coming out pretty much on a daily basis. I hope you'll continue to follow me there. And thank you for all of the support and feedback I get through the Corbett Report website. It is all greatly appreciated. So until next week, thank you for listening and take care. 